trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather and not feel the least bit apologetic. In fact, uh, you can actually revel in wrong think because, let's face it, if you want to stay tethered to reality in times such as the ones we live in, this is uh, this is what you have to do. You've got to be willing to question the narrative. You've got to be willing to speak the truth, even if your voice shakes. And you've got to be willing to stand firm because you will be labeled a very bad person for doing so. Just know that you're in good company. There may not be a lot of us, but, uh, you know, we, we at least are, are in good company. You know, when we get to the gulag, we're going to have enough folks for a heck of a great softball team. I can tell you that. Anyway, on a more optimistic note, thanks again for, for tuning in, whether you're new to the program or longtime listener. I, uh, I found some fun, fun stuff to sell, to sell today. Yes, I'm going to sell this to you and see if you buy it. Um, I don't think I'm going to have to work too hard to sell this one, though. Do you remember when over-the-counter cold and allergy medicines actually worked? Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. And by the way, you can thank the war on drugs, right? Because pseudoephedrine, well, you know, some people are using this to make methamphetamine. And anyway, uh, what was it about? Almost 20 years ago, the federal government decided, you know, we've got we've to convince these drug manufacturers to stop using pseudoephedrine and use another kind of decongestant. Which, it turns out, we just found out in the last few days, doesn't work. They changed the formula. Now look, I before I share this article with you from Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute, it's called Orwell Meets Your Stuffy Nose. But I want you to know, there was a, there was a time, and, and my dad was a pharmacist, so I felt pretty good consulting with him. You know, if I had bad allergies or I had a bad cold or something like that, I'd tell him, Dad, man, I can't, my nose is running or I'm sneezing. I just can't stop it. And he would give me an ActiFed or a Sudafed. And what was the other one? We called it the Green Bomber. I can't remember what it was called. It's, uh, I mean, you could get these things right over the counter. You could go to the pharmacist at uh, Bateman Pharmacy in St. George and quietly look around before you told the pharmacist, I need some Green Bombers. He would count out about 30 or so of these over-the-counter cold medications, put them in a bottle for you, sell it to you. It was dirt cheap. And you would take it. Here's the thing that they all had in common. When you took these decongestants, they would put you to sleep. Oh, man, I remember sitting in class in high school, you know, having a bad case of the sniffles. Well, I'll take an ActiFed. And uh, then sitting there in class with my eyes rolling back in my head going, holy crap, this is so miserable. I can't stay awake. But it worked. And the fact that it could help you sleep, I know with the, the case of the green bomber, you could uh, you could pretty much sleep off the cold. You take one of those and go lay down for 10 hours, and you generally felt quite a bit better when you got up. But let's walk through this process. How did we get from over-the-counter medications that worked to those that don't? Jeffrey Tucker says, experts have long doubted the effectiveness of phenylephrine which is a common ingredient in DayQuil, NyQuil, Sudafed, Mucinex, and others. This was National Public Radio this morning. And Jeffrey Tucker says it reminds me of Orwell. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia. 
They're telling us this 16 years after the FDA forced the ingredient as the substitute for a product that actually works, which is pseudoephedrine. Now, to get the product with pseudoephedrine requires that you ask for it. It's kept behind the counter. Then you have to use your driver's license, and there are restrictions on how many you can buy if you go to multiple drugstores. You will be caught and possibly brought up on criminal charges. This has been going on for years now. No exaggeration. In fact, he shares a headline from 2007. They really did attempt to criminalize buying cold remedies. First arrest in the nation for violating the Combat Methamphetamine Act. By the way, one of the people arrested for this was a grandmother in Wisconsin. No, she wasn't cooking meth. She just had, I guess they had a bad cold or something going through the family, and she picked up, I think it was three boxes over the course of a couple of days of uh, some over-the-counter remedy to jail. They took her to jail and arrested her for this. Talk about creating criminals where there were none. There you go. Well, the point here is, this time it's incredibly obvious that the FDA is right. Phenylephrine is a useless product, and that much has been obvious to consumers for a very long time, though it took alertness to know the difference. Plenty of people bought NyQuil thinking, ah, it's the same old NyQuil. But this is entirely the fault of the FDA itself, which together with the Bush administration deprecated pseudoephedrine in the name of the war on drugs. Now, pseudoephedrine is supposedly used to make meth, so it had to become a heavily controlled product under the guise of the war on terror. See the Combat Methamphetamine Epidemic Act of 2005. Yep, another epidemic. So as a result of the action two years later, many people have lived for 16 years with easily curable stuffy noses. How many people actually made and marketed meth using pseudofed? He says, I've sought the answer for years, but I've never run across any evidence that the practice is widespread. For all I know, he says it's entirely made up. What is the real reason the Bush administration made the change? Well, back in 2007, he says, I got curious and I looked it up. The old ingredient was out of patent and manufactured for pennies each. The new product was produced by Boehringer Ingelheim, Ingelheim Corporation, rather, a German company that back then gave mostly to Republicans. In other words, this was a payoff to a political donor. And there was a flurry of patents granted for the new product, one of which came as late as 2015 for phenylephrine uh, formulations with improved stability. So it's very likely that this product and its manufacturing became the cow that the existing ruling party could no longer milk. At this point, the FDA decided to say what everybody in the know has known for 16 years. It doesn't work. So what's next? Are we going back to the product that actually works? Maybe. But Jeffrey Tucker says more likely there will be a period in which there's a scramble for a new drug with new filing fees, new patents, new political donations, and new royalties for companies and the bureaucrats that grant them access. He says it's all quite brazen and absurd, especially rotten that the FDA seems to be placing the blame for a decade and a half of stuffy noses on the manufacturers of cold products, even though it was the government itself that forced them to use inferior ingredients in the first place. Now, there's, there's something especially absurd about the FDA right now. They rubber stamp vaccines without proper testing. They recommend them for everyone, even those at zero medical risk, for suffering from that which the vaccine is supposed to mitigate, even though the potion is for a variant that is already gone from the scene. And then they block and trash repurposed drugs that actually do work. 
So he says, and now in the name of fixing the common cold, they blasted out the news that DayQuil is no good, even though the drug regulators themselves are responsible for ruining what was once a perfectly respectable product. Now, some people speculate that this is, once again, a matter of directing all attention to the vaccine industry so that even the common cold can be cited as a reason to get, for example, the new RSV vaccine, which is helpfully promoted in New York Times just below its piece on the above news. He says the entire scene has become part of what is now called clown world. So what's the solution? Well, Jeffrey Tucker says probably all of us are going to be driven back to pre-war cold remedies like the neti pot for as low as $5 and saline solution. In some ways, that's probably a better remedy in any case. The American addiction to pills and shots for every minor malady has only empowered bullying bureaucrats and crony capitalists. While our health has otherwise suffered blow after blow, but at least now the racket is out in the open. I feel very vindicated as I'm reading this. I'm like, man, he's right. I have chafed at all the various over-the-counter remedies over the last 15, 16 years that uh, that clearly don't work. I know you can try it and it's like, well, you know, it kind of maybe had placebo effect, but the other stuff worked. It flat out worked. Oh, and by the way, on the neti pot, that's spelled N-E-T-I, if you want to check it out for yourself. I was very skeptical, but I had a coworker who swore by it. And I, without, without ruining your, your lunch or ruining your breakfast, or if, you, if you're, if you're you know, sitting at the table listening, the neti pot essentially is warm water mixed with a very mild salt solution. It's a very mild saline solution that you pour up one nostril and allow to drain out the other. In other words, you, you're essentially, you're, you're douching your, uh, your sinuses with it. And it's, it sounds bizarre, and, and it feels a little bit bizarre the first time you try it, but it really does bring relief. If you are suffering severe allergies, and I know I've talked to a lot of people in the last few weeks who've been like, man, I've never had allergies like this. I would recommend the neti pot. Now, Brian, there might be a danger of brain-eating amoeba. I understand that's that's actually a risk, even with tap water. But for a non-drug solution, it does bring relief. And I was a skeptic until I tried it, and then I was like, you know what? This is actually really, really good. So I recommend it for what it's worth. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Hey, if you haven't subscribed to my show notes, I'm not saying they're going to solve all your problems. You wake up every, up every morning with pearly white teeth and minty fresh breath, but... I do have some great food for thought that I uh, serve up on a daily basis. I wish I could say it's mine. It's not. I'm kind of an aggregator of sorts. I pull together timely, credible information from the best sources that I can find and pass it on to you at no extra cost. And it's absolutely free, by the way, to subscribe. Just go to thebrianhideshow.com, click on the show notes, down at the bottom of the page is the subscribe button, and it's really that simple. All you have to do is uh, put in your email address, and I will... uh, I will send it to you every day that I do the program. So the nuclear family, look, I, I 
think I'm being generous when I say it has withstood a lot of challenges over the years. And when it comes to advice on how to make the nuclear family work, I feel like I'm kind of duty-bound to pass that along simply because I want the family to succeed. Which I'm sure to the woke, so you're a nuclear family supremacist, huh? (laughs) Yeah, whatever that is. All I know is it has stood the test of time. And one of the things that I know uh, people find a challenge, you know, when it comes to, for instance, getting married and starting a family, is sorting out the breadwinning. This is an article by Candace McManaman. Breadwinning begins before the wedding. I thought you'd find this, this interesting. If you're not into traditional points of view, you may find this challenging, but it seems like it was worth sharing. Candace says at the center of traditionalism is the nuclear family. I've yet to meet a traditionalist who doesn't desire to have a family centered on the timeless values of husband and wife with children. The husband slash father shoulders breadwinning and the wife slash mother stays home with the children. Now, she says, my own family is structured this way, and I've previously written about whether a working father and stay-at-home mother is the ideal for everyone. Ideal as this goal is, sadly, it's easier said than done. In fact, she says, in my extended social circles, as well as my religious community, there is a common struggle for couples pursuing a traditional marriage and family. Simply put, it is this. Young men are failing to prepare for the financial responsibility of sole breadwinning. Now, we could go back and forth all day about why, where, and who is to blame for this failure, but in the end, the result remains. Many wonderful young men enter marriage admirably dreaming of protecting and providing, but they have no foundation to turn this dream into reality. She says young Christian men face a nosediving economy, religious discrimination, and job outsourcing. Educational debt is sky high, and colleges don't always provide students with solid job and finance counseling. So it's a tough world out there. All the more reason to get successful breadwinning set up while family-minded men are still single. Often for young families, it's very difficult for one or both parents to make a big career shift, go back to school, or start a job from scratch. Rent, housing, medical bills, the cost of having and raising children pile up over time, and there's little wiggle room left for exploring career changes or further education, and a breadwinner can feel stuck in a job he hates. Or the family dream is flipped on its head. She says couples she personally knows end up in situations where the wife or mother is the breadwinner simply because she has the qualifications for a financially supportive job. Often a bit of prep work before the wedding can prevent the traditional dream from falling apart. So what's a young man in no man's land supposed to do? And the answer is deceptively simple. Candace McManaman says get a fallback qualification. She says, see, there isn't a need to find a forever perfect career before getting married. Now, if you already have one of those, congratulations. Nor is there a need to be stuck forever in a job you hate. What young men really need is a backup plan, something on which they can rely to provide for themselves and their families in times of need. A breadwinner can use his fallback option as a starting point for a career or as a placeholder job to fund the pursuit of something else. It can provide a second job, side hustle, or extra income during a family financial difficulty. It can offer an immediate option in the event of a job loss or other crisis. Truly, this is a genius way to approach becoming a breadwinner. So essentially, the idea of a fallback qualification narrows down the huge variety of options and asks one simple question. What will you do if X, Y, or Z doesn't work out? 
So as an example, Candace says when her husband graduated from high school, he didn't know what he wanted to do. So he earned an associate's degree in dental technology and planned to work in that field to fund the rest of his higher education and job exploration. She says her brother earned an athletic training degree prior to entering physical therapy school just in case he didn't get accepted into the doctoral program. She says a friend of mine became an accountant and realtor before starting to build his freelance writing portfolio. In some of these cases, the young men knew what their dream job was and were smart about using stepping stones to get there. In others, they planned to have a money-earning job while they researched fields to find a better long-term option. She says, see what I mean by genius? So one of the easiest ways that any young man can explore a fallback job is to consider trade school. For example, a technical college not far from where she lives offers over 30 associate's degrees, certificates or qualifications, including but not limited to accounting, business administration, nursing, including a two-year LPN or three-year RN degree, criminal justice, computer-aided drafting, design and engineering technology, construction technology, electrical engineering, welding technology, biomedical equipment technology, cyber and information technology, software development, automotive technology, and truck driving. All of these options and more can be obtained within two years or less and are far less costly than a university degree. It can often be completed entirely online. Most importantly, many of these options are valuable in the workforce today, meaning they pay a livable salary if a young man is looking to be a breadwinner. Now, of course, while trade school and associate's degrees can be a good choice, other options are available. Apprenticeships provide on-the-job training or one might consider portfolio work. But she says the best time to prepare a fallback qualification is when a young man is still single. Simply put, it's very convenient to have the spade work done before you get married and have children. However, late is better than never. Men who are dating or even engaged could benefit greatly from pursuing a usable fallback qualification and your future family will thank you for it. Finally, a note to young women who want to be mothers and homemakers, we would be wise to get our own fallback qualifications. Candace McManaman says we can't predict what life will throw at us, and a good husband is not immune to illness, job loss, or disability. Let's love our future families before we even have them, and prepare to provide if necessary. For example, she says, I have my college degree in special education, as well as a side gig in freelance and novel writing. If I ever need to take the reins as a breadwinner for a short time in my family, I'm prepared for it. And she says, as I've seen firsthand, the dream family life is possible. It just requires a little foresight. I thought this was an especially timely article. And I'm going to admit, I'll confess this to you. It actually hit me pretty hard, too, because I'll tell you, I did, I've done radio now for coming up on 40 years. I think I hit my 39-year anniversary in December and that has been my primary way of being a breadwinner, which uh, if you know anything about radio, especially small market radio, it's, uh, well, it's iffy at best when it comes to income and, uh, you know, job security. Uh, let's just say that uh, things change on a, on a fairly regular basis. I still say one of the best investments that I made in my own future was to, uh, to start to get a classical liberal arts education, which, by the way, I still work on on a daily basis. A little bit of study in the comfort of my own home, but I'm pushing myself. And, and here's the, the key. One of those times when I was, uh, uh, when I had suffered a worse f- workforce reduction, in other words, when I was laid off unexpectedly, 
It was after I had begun that uh, classical liberal arts education that I came to realize there's a lot more that I can do than simply radio. And now I, uh, I do. I work for myself. Yes, my boss is a jerk. But I do all kinds of different stuff. I do freelance writing. I do voice work. I do audio production for other people. I have uh, I've taught online classes. I mean, it's there, there's a lot you can do. I've also worked at, uh, you know, the uh, gas station down the street, you know, as a clerk behind the counter. Don't sell yourself short, but I like her idea. Candace is right. If you have a fallback position, guys, especially before you get married, you're probably doing it right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out to my sponsors. These are the folks who help to make this program possible on a day-to-day basis. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also TMCPNation.com, ClimbingUpward.com, and QuiltAndSew.com. Also, my thanks to you wonderful listeners who uh, take the time to uh, throw a few extra shekels my way each month. Um, I don't spend a lot of time asking for donations. I greatly appreciate those of you who of your own volition say, you know what, thanks for what you're doing. And uh, I think that the phrase that they use is, hey, buy me a cup of coffee or, you know, buy buy me a soft drink or whatever. And and you send that. And uh, you're, you're doing a wonderful job of keeping up with inflation, by the way, because it seems like that's, that's about what a soft drink or <laughs> a cup of coffee would cost. Anyway, let's talk about... The pushback on COVID protocols. Now, I understand that, uh, you know, a lot of people were very, um, how can I put this, skeptical about the idea that, uh, you know, people would push back on masks or they would push back on the lockdowns or the social distancing or, you know, essential versus non-essential designations or the vaccine mandates and so forth. How do I know this? Well, because I was on the receiving end of pushback from all of those things. And, and, and I know that one of the things I was accused of on a fairly regular basis is, well, you're just doing this to be contrary. You're just trying to be edgy. And I, I maintain, no, no, it's uh, I, I don't like the discomfort of being the odd man out. It would certainly have been easier to just go along with things and not, you know, cause a spectacle. Sir, where's your mask? But my conscience is, is really why I, just felt like I couldn't do it. And, and the more I looked into the issue, the more I studied, the more it became clear that, you know, all these things that were being pushed on us weren't for the sake of mitigating the risks of this COVID infection. In fact, as time went on and we realized, well, look, the infection fatality rate is still, you know, way less than 1%. It's like one third of 1% for people outside of, you know, a very old or very sick demographic. Well, I came across an article here that, uh, that I think really illustrates one of the big reasons why I'm grateful that so many people pushed back. And it was the, the death of informed consent. This was particularly true as it applied to um, the, the vaccines and so forth. This was authored by Stella Paul in AmericanThinker.com. She starts with a scenario saying, here's what never happened in the hospital during covid So here's an imaginary scenario, but this one never happened. A doctor sat down next next to a patient and said, you have a choice. We can give you remdesivir, 
which killed 53% of the patients in an Ebola trial. It was so bad, the trial had to be shut down. And you'll notice here in Rem- Remdesivir's fact sheet, it says, not a lot of people have used Remdesivir. Serious and unexpected side effects may happen. Or we can give you ivermectin, a safe and effective drug that's been successfully used for decades, and send you home. Which do you prefer? Now, the reason that conversation never happened is that it would have cost the hospital too much money. If the hospital gave you ivermectin and, that's, and sent you home, the federal government paid the hospital $3,200. Now, if the hospital gave you remdesivir, the federal government paid the entire hospital bill plus a 20% bonus. So the hospital executive's choice was to receive $3,200 or $500,000, which was the average hospital bill. You want to talk about some perverse incentives. No contest. Patients were going to get remdesivir whether they wanted it or not. And Stella Paul says informed consent died a grotesque death in hospitals during COVID, and we need an autopsy. There was no information. There was no consent. And without them, patients are reduced to helpless victims exploited for corrupt financial gain and immoral experiments. Informed consent has been enshrined in numerous judicial rulings as the foundation of ethical medical practice and seared into the public's conscience from the Nuremberg trials. Seven Nazi doctors were hanged in Germany by an American military tribunal for murders, tortures, and other atrocities committed in the name of medical science. Yet murders, tortures, and other atrocities are exactly what was committed by medical staff in the hospitals against thousands of Americans during COVID. That's pretty harsh, but I don't disagree with her. Take, for example, Ray Lamar, who arrived in the emergency room with a message written with a black Sharpie pen on his arm, no vent, no remdesivir. On his other arm, he wrote the same message and added his wife's name and phone number. Yet the doctors gave him remdesivir anyway without ever informing him. His widow, Patty, said she constantly wonders what she could have done to save him. His widow, yes. Christine Johnson told doctors that she discussed all her medications with her daughter, who was a nurse, and concluded she didn't want remdesivir. It didn't matter. Christine was given remdesivir while she was sleeping. Now her daughter, Michelle, doesn't have a mother. Rebecca Stevens was an avid, avid reader of Epic Times where she learned about remdesivir's dangers. She declined remdesivir on five separate occasions as her hospital records confirm. But the medical staff didn't care what Rebecca wanted. She was given remdesivir without her knowledge. Now her five grandsons are bereft. Stella Paul says, I asked Michael Hamilton, how is it possible to give remdesivir to patients without them knowing? Hamilton's a lawyer for several families suing California hospitals for the murder of their loved ones. And he's heard, vic- he's heard thousands of victim stories. His answer is they would lie right to your face. You'd tell the nurse that you didn't want remdesivir, and she'd say, fine, but you're a bit, be- de- bit dehydrated, so let's get some fluids in you. And she'd hook up the IV, but it wasn't fluids. It was remdesivir. Paul St- or Stella Paul says, Hamilton told me that another favorite tactic was to knock out the patients with sedatives like morphine and fentanyl. And while while they lay there in a stupor, they were injected with remdesivir. So if secret injections of remdesivir weren't enough to kill you, the hospitals had more torture lined up. After all, the federal government's paid the hospitals a big bonus to ventilate patients. So patients were going to get ventilated whether they wanted it or not. 
A lot of patients turn down being vented because the whole process is a nightmare. You're painfully intubated, rendered unable to talk, your lungs start shredding, you may acquire bacterial pneumonia, which the hospital will refuse to treat. But no is not an acceptable answer when the hospital has money at stake. The medical staff's preferred method for gaining consent was relentless bullying, screaming, coercion, and threats until the patient finally caved. Patty Lamar, Ray's widow, told me that when she refused to let them ventilate her husband, doctors screamed at her over and over, you're killing him, you're killing him, you're killing him. When she couldn't take it anymore, she reluctantly gave in. Ray died shortly thereafter, and Patty lives with the trauma of that moment. Now, Stella says, Michael Hamilton told me the fate of his friend who was a nurse hospitalized in the place where she'd worked for 26 years when she refused ventilation. The doctor shrieked, you're refusing medical advice. Now your insurance company won't pay your hospital bill when you die. You want to bankrupt your family? Do you? Do you? Well, the nurse panicked, and to protect her family, she consented. Two days later, she died. Hamilton says this was a very common technique. I've heard it hundreds of times. You tell the patient that unless they do what the doctor says, they'll bankrupt their family because insurance won't pay the hospital bills. Nobody wants to do that to their family. Now, does that sound like informed consent to you? Stella Paul says that sounds more like medical battery to me. She says the entire hospital environment was a hellscape of abuse in which informed consent wasn't even a distant memory. Hamilton told her that patients were routinely denied all access to food and water, stupefied with 50 medications that included drugs contraindicated for each other, tortured with oxygen machines set at such high levels they couldn't breathe, and zip-tied to the bed till their wrists bled and their hands turned black. And his stories align with a thousand collected testimonies of the COVID-19 Human Betrayal Memory Project, which documents the victims' fates. Now, the ultimate denial of informed consent was the hospital's refusal to allow the patients to leave. Senator Ron Johnson told Patty Myers in her documentary, Making a Killing, patients lost all rights when they went in the hospital. They became prisoners. Now, a cottage industry of hospital rescues cropped up as desperate family members hired lawyers to try to spring their loved ones out of hospital care. Ralph Lorigo, a, a lawyer in Buffalo, told me that in every case when he succeeded in getting a patient's case before a judge, the judge ruled in the family's favor, and the patient went home and survived. In every case where the judge refused to hear the case or ruled against the family, the patient died. Stella Paul says every American is a sovereign individual with inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, not a sack of meat to be treated as a profit opportunity. Informed consent must be revived from the grave if Americans are to have a fighting chance against powerful financial interests allied against them. Now, I'll grant you, this is, Brian, this sounds like we're condemning the whole healthcare industry. And yeah, I, I get you that uh, it, it sounds like there's, there's kind of a blanket indictment there. Can we at least agree that uh, the medical establishment has become more of a cartel in league with government? And when you venture onto their territory, you're essentially walking into a hostile situation. The Ammon Bundy versus St. Luke's thing, by the way, puts a really fine point on exactly this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A couple of quick articles to finish out this final segment of today's show. I'm just going to touch briefly on this one because it's a fairly lengthy article, but I would love for you to take a look at it for yourself and see what you think. This is from AmericanGreatness.com or AmGreatness.com. And it's an article by Edward Ring about uh, the precautionary principle extremism as it applies particularly to um, environmental issues. And the gist of what he's saying here is there's a remote chance that catastrophic climate change is imminent, but there's an even more remote possibility that we can actually do something about it. If you're not familiar with, um, if you're familiar with any understanding of risk, you should be familiar with the precautionary principle. It's defined as the precept that an action should not be taken if the consequences are uncertain and potentially dangerous. Like, oh, I don't know, for instance, let's do away with fossil fuels before we have something in place that can actually take their place. Just a little something to think about. The precautionary principle, he says, is an important governing concept when it's applied to, ch- to climate change mitigation. So the possibility of human CO2 emissions causing a catastrophic climate outcome is used to justify major policy shifts designed to lower or even eliminate these emissions. But the impracticality of this endeavor is considered insignificant in the face of the potentially terrifying consequences of doing nothing. They're, they're leaping before they look, is the point that he's making. And it's an excellent article, well worth your time, if you're just looking for a second opinion on the idea of, uh, of, of what, what climate change risk is and, and why there's even greater risk in the way that uh, we're trying to prevent you know, this from happening. Oh, yes, as if we just give enough money to politicians and enough power to government, somehow they're going to change the climate. By the way, anytime there is risk involved, choice has to be a part of the equation. It has to. So I hope you enjoy Edward Ring's article. Okay, this is the article of the day, this next one. And and this is going to make some people, I'm sure, get a little bit uh, stiff in their back. Whoa, wait a minute here. It's by Doug Casey, an interview with the, or a, a piece that was published on International Man, rather, Making the Chicken Run. You familiar with that phrase? I mean, maybe you've seen the, the claymation video or the claymation film, Chicken Run, but Making the Chicken Run is what Rhodesians used to say about neighbors who packed up and got out during the 60s and 70s before the place became Zimbabwe. It was considered unpatriotic to leave Rhodesia, but Doug Casey points out it was also genuinely idiotic not to. So the question I have for you is, how bad would things have to get before you would consider packing up and leaving the United States? Now, Doug says, I've written many times about the importance of internationalizing your assets, your mode of living, and your way of thinking. He says, I suspect most readers have treated these articles as they might a travelogue to some distant and exotic land. Yes, interesting fodder for cocktail party chatter, but basically academic and of little immediate personal relevance. So he says, I'm directing these comments toward the U.S., mainly because that's where the problem is most acute, but they're applicable to most countries. He says, now in 2023, the U.S. is in real trouble. Not as bad as Rhodesia 50 years ago, and definitely a different kind of trouble, but plenty serious. For many years, it's been obvious that the country was eventually going to hit the wall. Now the inevitable is rapidly becoming imminent. What do I mean by that? Well, he says, there's plenty of reason to be concerned about things financial and economic. But he says, I personally believe we haven't been bearish enough on the eventual social and political fallout from the Greater Depression. 
Nothing is certain, but the odds are high that the U.S. is going into a time of troubles at least as bad as any experienced in any advanced country in the last century. Now, he says, I hate saying things like that because it sounds outrageous and inflammatory and it can create a credibility gap. It invites arguments with people. And although I enjoy discussing, discussion, rather, he says, I dislike arguing. But he says it strikes most people as outrageous because the long-running post-World War II boom has been punctuated by only brief recessions. After 78 years, why should it ever end? The thought of a nasty and, and certainly... Nasty end, rather, certainly runs counter to the experience of almost everyone now alive, including him. And he says, our personal experience is what we tend to trust the most. But, he says, it seems to me we're very close to a tipping point. Ice stays ice, even while it's being warmed, until the temperature goes over 32 degrees Fahrenheit, where it very quickly changes into something very different. So first, he talks about the economy. Economic bankruptcy accompanied by financial chaos, that point is quickly approaching for the U.S. government. With deficits at over a trillion dollars per year, for as far as the eye can see, the U.S. Treasury will very soon be unable to roll over its maturing debt at anything near current interest rates. The only reliable buyer will be the Federal Reserve, which can only buy by creating new dollars. He says within the next 24 months, dollar is, the dollar is likely to start losing value rapidly and noticeably. By the way, do you not notice this already, though? Every time you go grocery shopping, I carried $30 in groceries out easily in one hand. Three very small bags of groceries. It's, it's getting worse. Doug talks about how uh, this is just going to be the start of the trouble. The U.S. property market floats on a sea of debt. It's very easy to tax. It's also going to be hit very hard, this time by stifling mortgage rates. Next step up is up for uh, interest rates. Forget about property owners paying their existing mortgages. Many won't be able to pay their taxes and utilities, and maintenance will be out of the question. He says the pain will spread. Insurance companies are invested mostly in bonds and real estate. Many will go bankrupt. Same is true of most pension funds. If the stock market doesn't collapse, it will only be be because money is looking for a place to hide from inflation. The payout for Social Security will drop significantly in real terms, if not in dollars, and the standard of living of most Americans will fall. Now, maybe you're thinking about that, or maybe you're feeling that right now. And it's going to be, in in some ways, he says, this has potential to be much more serious in the U.S. than it was in places like Argentina, Brazil, Serbia, Russia, Mozambique, or Zimbabwe. And he gives a couple reasons. First of all, many people in those countries knew they couldn't trust their government, and they acted accordingly, even in contravention of the law, by accumulating assets elsewhere. So there was a significant pool of capital available for rebuilding. Americans, on the other hand, tend to be much more insular, law-abiding, and trusting in their government. When they lose their U.S. assets, they'll have lost everything. Secondly, he says these societies were much more rural than the U.S. is today. As in the America of a hundred years ago, much of the population lived quite close to the land and had practical skills and habits that helped them get through the tough times. For 21st century Americans, it's a different story. Shortages and disorder are going to hit commuters who live in suburbs and urban dwellers who think milk appears in cartons magically like a ton of bricks. One thing you can absolutely count on is that everyone will look to government to do something. Americans really do think governments control the way the world works. And almost certainly, 
the U.S. government will step in massively because everyone will want them to, and the politicians themselves believe they should. This will greatly aggravate the crisis and make it last longer than necessary, kind of like the Great Depression. But he says, then it gets serious. Okay, this is just the short run. The long run is much more serious because the next chapter of the Greater Depression has every chance of radically and at least semi-permanently overturning the basic character of American life. Ice turned to water suddenly and unexpectedly. In Russia in 1918, in Germany in 1933, China in 1949, Vietnam in 1954, Cambodia in 1975, and Rwanda in 1995. Those are just the first examples that come to mind. But there are scores more. And he says, the economic events that I've outlined are going to mean serious hardship and unpleasantness for many people. But he says, that doesn't concern me nearly as much as the social and political reaction. Now, he goes into some detail here, which I'm not going to have time to go into. But he says, so here's, here's a prediction. Writing the economic and social disorder, we are going to find ourselves facing new praetorians, oriented as they are toward professional paranoia and the national security state. And he says they're going to become increasingly virulent. They're going to use the continuing economic crisis to increase their power. Like it or not, the American people will demand it since they're so degraded, they really do prefer the appearance of security to the prospect of having to take personal responsibility. And he says, if I'm right, and I feel as sure about this as I have about anything, then it's not going to go well for libertarians, classical liberals, old-line conservatives, individualists, freethinkers, nonconformists, people who subscribe to letters like his or cruise suspicious websites or gamma rats generally. It was a dangerous environment for these types, not to mention those of Japanese or German descent and members of various religious groups during America's past crises. But he says when the chimpanzees are hooting and panting, you'd better join them or they'll start wondering why not. Okay, that's a pretty scary thought. He says, I expect what we're looking at is going to be much more serious than any past crisis, partly because America has already evaporated, like the morning haze on a hot summer's day. But he says, you're not in Kansas anymore. Kansas isn't in Kansas anymore. I'd I'd check this out if I were you. It's a great commentary, Doug Casey. You'll find it in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.